Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. On the ashes, thanks to Izuzu, you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. Here are four points to four-wheel drive you to work on the first test of the ashes series. Point one, forget Bazball. We need to be concerned about Ben's brain. Ben Stokes' aggressive captaincy helped swing the game England's way just when Australia looked to set looked set to take a first innings lead on day three of the first Ashes test at Edgebaston. Stokes' field placings got Australian batsmen playing the field, not the ball. And of the five Aussie wickets to fall on day three, three fell victim to trying to beat the field rather than just playing the ball on its merits. After Alex Carey was beaten by a very good Jimmy Anderson nip backer, Usman Kawaja got flummoxed by Stokes putting six close catches in front of the wicket and tried to come down the pitch at Ollie Robinson. He yorked himself. Nathan Lyon was out hooking because the field Stokes had set him, told him he was going to get short stuff. The same goes for Aussie skipper Pat Cummins. Point two, Usman Kawaja's steadiness at the top of the Aussie order is going to be just as important as Travis Head's dash or Steve Smith's class. And the Poms are playing into Kawaja's hands if they want to deaden their pitches to suit their own fast-scoring style of play that comes with Basball. Kawaja has become a star in this Australian team over the past few months, and the key to his game is to stay still and anchored and play the ball late. If the ball was doing more, this could be a problem, but on decks like the pudding they have produced at Edgbaston, he is likely to do very well. The thing about Usman is that he can bat long periods and make big hundreds, and that will allow the rest of the Aussie team to bat around him. If three or four bat reasonably well, as they did in the first innings here, we will score respectably, and if one or two bat really well, we will score big. Point three, who would have thought Moe and Ali's finger would be the key digit in this test match. Well, it's going to be now the Duke ball ripped the skin off Ali's spinning finger, the legacy of too much white ball cricket and not enough red ball cricket in recent months. Ali who'd produced the brilliant turning offy to get Cameron green out in the first innings, bowled several chest high full tosses at Pat Cummins and other Aussies on day three Close-ups of his finger showing it red and raw. He was fined 25% of his match fee for applying a drying agent to it without permission. It means if he can't treat it and he's struggling with it, then it's going to be left to batsman Joe Root to do most of the spin bowling for England in the second innings on a pitch where the spinners are likely to play a key role. And point four, we keep saying it, David Warner. We know that every time he goes out to bat, he's a chance to score runs. Let's face it, even blind squirrels find acorns occasionally. But is anyone else curious on how a bloke who's passed 43 times in his last 19 test innings is still getting a game, especially when he's 36 years old and at least three younger men, Marcus Harris, 
Cameron Bancroft and Matt Renshaw sit in the opening batting queue behind him. Warner has been a great player for Australia. And as I said, he's still some chance to make runs in the second dig. This is a flat pitch and you are always a chance. But isn't there a big enough body of evidence there now to call time on him? And shouldn't we have called time on him by now? Isn't this elite sport? Aren't you supposed to have to make way when you are no longer elite? The Aussie test selectors appear to be giving Warner his own set of keys into this team. Thanks to Izuzu, Utes, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. Here are my four points to four-wheel drive you to work on the Ashes. Point one, we are in the first test with a shot. But I hate to say it, England are in the box seat. We will resume at three for 107. We need a further 174 for victory with Usman Kawaja and Scott Boland at the crease. I'd feel a lot better about our chances if Steve Smith was still there. I suspect that Kawaja is going to have to make at least 70 or 80 if we're going to be a chance in this. This is the downside of leaving Mitchell Stark out of the team. We have a very long tail now, and the Poms went through that tail like a knife through hot butter in the first innings. It's going to be up to first innings hero Kawaja, Cameron Green, Travis Head, and Alex Carey to make the bulk of these runs. It's possible, but as I said off the top, I would rather be England heading into day five. Point two, Manus Labuschagne is ranked as the world's number one batsman, but he's got some thinking to do after his second flat-footed waft at a Stuart Broad outswinger, which brought about his undoing in this match. Labuschagne was all about smothering the swing and getting down the pitch to eliminate LBWs in the World Test Championship final against India but he bats so far over on off stump that it brings balls well outside the off stump into his eye line. And he's reaching for them rather than stepping out to them. He has tended to be a very good problem solver over his career so far, and we'll wait and see how he happen, how, how he tackles this one. Point three, how good were Pat Cummins and Nathan Lyon on day four? Cummins swimming your, swinging Yorker that knocked over Ollie Pope was one of the best balls you'll ever see. And with the classy Joe Root threatening to hit us out of the match, Lyon beat him completely in flight and turned what Root fancied to be a six-hit over mid-wicket into an ungainly slog and a neat stumping by Alex Carey. Lyon and Cummins took eight of the ten wickets to fall. They bowled 42 of the 66 overs in the second innings, and they're going to need to be great in this series. The English batters have a clear plan to knock Scott Boland off his length, and I suspect they'll try a similar tactic with Josh Hazelwood. We're probably going to need Mitchell Stark's pure pace and reverse swing and his Yorkers. Might as well disregard what runs he might concede. This is going to be all about wickets, and the England batters are going after everyone anyway. And point four... I hope when the Aussies go out to bat this evening, they are proactive and not reactive. The genius of the way Stokes has led his team is that they are setting the agenda for almost every session in this test match, not Australia. And that is fine. The Aussies don't want to be trying to beat England at their own game, but they need to make sure that they are playing the Aussie game and and playing the ball on its merits, not reacting to Stokes' fields. Take the runs when they are there and aim to bat two sessions normally. Do that, and Australia will almost certainly win tonight. But, as I said at the top of the show, 
I would rather be England at this point. One, this was Pat Cummins' finest hour as the Australian captain. He bowled beautifully in the England second innings and took four wickets, and he and Nathan Lyon carried the bulk of the workload for the Aussie attack. It was his magnificent swinging Yorker to get Ollie Pope that set England back on its heels on day four when they looked to surge ahead with a quick run rate. He was heroic with the bat with his unbeaten ninth wicket stand of 55 with Nathan Lyon getting the Aussies home after they'd looked dead in the water when Alex Carey had been dismissed by Joe Root to leave Australia at eight for 227. Cummins scored 44 off 73 balls. He took the attack to England. They don't call him Postman Pat for nothing. This day he delivered the highest successful run chase in an Ashes test since Bradman's Invincibles in 1948. Two, Usman Kawaja has assumed the role of the rock in the Aussie batting lineup. It was his 141 in the first dig that enabled the Australians to head into the second innings on even terms. It was his 65 in the second innings that anchored one of the biggest fourth innings run chases in Australian Test cricket history. Kawaja's calm demeanour and steadiness is the perfect counterpoint to some of the more mercurial players around him. Kawaja's test batting average is now pushing 50. He is technically sound. He's not bothered by bowling quick or otherwise. He plays the full and the short balls equally well. Point three, the value of a great off-spinner able to go about his work was evident in this match. Nathan Lyon was Australia's best bowler throughout the five days of this test. He took four wickets in both innings. He got the crucial second innings breakthrough when he knocked over in-form Joe Root. By comparison, the wounded English offie Moeen Ali got a couple of nice breakthroughs in the two innings, but he and part-timer Root could only combine for two second innings wicket on a pretty dead track. And Ali's sore spinning finger also meant that he lacked control at times during his spells, and Cummins was after able to go after him a bit. Of course, Lyon was also still there with Cummins at the end, making an invaluable 16 not out in that 55-run ninth-wicket stand. And the lofted-on drive off Stuart Broad when Broad and England had taken the new ball, that will be the best shot Nathan Lyon plays in his entire test career. Four, the English recriminations will start with Ben Stokes' decision to declare late on day one with Root in full flow. But Stokes, true to the baseball method, wanted to knock over a couple of the Aussie top order and they survived. He gambled and he lost. This is the way England plays now. It makes for fascinating test cricket, but it probably cost them a few runs. It was also the way they play that lured Root into a good old-fashioned windy woof at a well-flighted lion offie in the second innings when Root looked in total control at the crease. That might have been the moment that the match swung just enough Australia's way to open the door for what will become one of our greatest victories and a win that will erase some of the ghosts from the second test at Edgebaston in the famous 2005 test series. And another four points to four-wheel drive you to work thanks to Isuzu. Live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. If you are a Frio fan, if you recovered from the horror show, that was the team's 70-point loss to GWS at the weekend.
Here's our four points. Let's start with the positive, and I say positive singular. Liam Henry, this is the best he has looked in an AFL game. I need to qualify the praise because Henry had 17 disposals for 360-odd metres gained in the game. Josh Kelly and Finn Callahan, who were spreading their time on the wings for GWS, both had big games. Kelly had 33 and kicked three goals. But Henry looked like he found his feet in the tempo of AFL footy at the weekend. He had a bit of poise with the ball in his hands and unlike a lot of teammates, wasn't afraid to go back inside the corridor. Point two, the Dockers can't get Sean Darcy back quickly enough. Not that Luke Jackson can't ruck. It is more that without at least one more season big body in front of the ball, <coughs> excuse me, the Dockers are kicking to 19-year-old Jai Amis and 20-year-old Josh Tracy. The good defences are going to pick that off, and that's what happened when brilliant defender Sam Taylor went to Amis at the weekend. Sam Sturt was okay and kicked two goals, but Michael Walters got smothered. And apart from Nathan Fife's one screamer and his goal, the rest of the Dockers' forward line was ineffective. And Nathan O'Driscoll's speed on a wing is important to Frio, but I'm not sure he can continue to stay in the team until he finds some form. He's really struggled in the last two games. He fell over at critical times against Richmond and his ball use at the weekend against GWS was a problem with Liam Henry doing better and James Aish a chance to return after concussion and a handful of young Frio mids in the queue outside of the team. I think O'Driscoll's spot likely to come up for discussion this week. Point four, <clears throat> history says there'll be one or two games like this every season for a WA team where they get on the plane at one end and they don't get off at the other in the right frame of mind and body to compete at AFL level. The problem for the Dockers is that their slow start to the season meant they couldn't afford this. They have no wriggle room in the run home if they want to play finals. They've gone from more likely than unlikely to make it coming out of the win over Melbourne to more unlikely than likely to make it now. And that loss in round two at home to North Melbourne was always going to loom large for them and it is getting bigger and bigger with every loss they have now. What do you think? You can have your say on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736, or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. And after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk to the West Australian's Jordan McArdle, who was in Sydney for the debacle. On to footy. West Coast head to the SCG to face Sydney this weekend after the week off. They're a chance to get McGovern, Hearn and Barris back after the bye. We'll talk to Eagles great Josh Kennedy later in the show about the back half of the team season. We'll also talk to West Coast footy manager Gavin Bell. And meanwhile, Frio are trying to bounce back after a 70-point flogging and a horror show for them against the Giants in Sydney last weekend. We'll talk to Dockers great Paul Hazelby later in the show about what is required. But first, thanks to Izuzu again, living your own way in the Izuzu D-Max. Here are my four points to four-wheel drive you to work about our two teams. Point one, the Eagles season is flat-out cursed. The news that Jake Waterman faces an extended period on the sidelines after spending days in hospital with a stomach infection comes on top of things like Jack Williams' lacerated spleen in the preseason, Josh Rotham's weird finger injury a couple of weeks ago, 
and an injury lifts to somewhere between 15 and 20 every week of this season since the Round 3 Western Derby lost to Fremantle. I haven't seen anything like it, and we'll talk to Gavin Bell soon in this show to get updates on Waterman and others for the Eagles season after the break. Point two, once they become fit and available, Adam Simpson needs to stick his senior players into the heat of battle, let his kids play around them, but he needs to see how many of the oldies hold up. The last thing West Coast can afford is another season where these blokes are all sitting on the sidelines in 2024. He needs to know now who is a chance to be durable and who isn't. Let's face it, this season has been an unmitigated disaster. It's all about getting games into youngsters, and then it's all about the right list management decisions and draft picks at the end of the year. West Coast need to arm themselves with as much information about all of that as they possibly can. Point three, there is talk about the Dockers coach being too placid leading into the club's poor starts in games. They have lost 16 of 17 first quarters, a run which started in the back half of last year and has continued into this year. Maybe it's time a few more of the Fremantle on-field leaders stepped up and took responsibility for this. The last person to speak to the Dockers player group before the game starts is their skipper, Alex Pierce, and he leads a group that includes Caleb Sarong and Andrew Brayshaw, and both of them have been sluggish early in the losses to Richmond and GWS before getting going later. Players create and solve the vast majority of problems on a footy field. And point four, I know that the talk about whether Sean Darcy is tradable or not has been our talk and not coming from the club, but it's time to get him signed. Go early and dilute the latter parts of the deal by getting the extension to include next year. The past two weeks have underlined what he means to this Frio team. The midfield lacks size and muscle, and when he's not out there, and the forward line lacks age, size, and muscle when Luke Jackson is replacing Sean Darcy in the ruck. What do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736, or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. After the break, we'll be back to talk to Gavin Bell, the West Coast Eagles general manager of football, about the club's run into the second half of the season and what they did over the break, who they're going to get back. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We'll be talking to Gavin soon. Meanwhile, the footy season goes on at home and there's a massive game at home for Fremantle as they try and stay in the race for the top eight after stumbling to losses in the last two weeks. We're going to talk to Craig O'Donoghue from the West Australian later in the show about the challenge in front of both the WA teams coming up this weekend. But thanks to Izuza Utes, here are my four points to four-wheel drive you to work this wet Wednesday morning. One, Fremantle have to win. As it stands, they're going to need to win seven out of their last 10 games to make the top eight. Seven out of 10 will be tough with the draw they have. Seven out of nine, if they can't beat Essendon, will be nigh on impossible. We need to see something from Fremantle this weekend. We haven't seen often enough this year, and that's real resolve. They need to find a way. Let's face it. Even given the stinker against the Giants last weekend, if the Dockers had simply found a way in round two against North Melbourne, they would be sitting percentage from eight spot at the moment 
and well in touch. And similar things can be said about the round 13 clash with Richmond as well. They were close enough. They just didn't get it done when the game went on the line. Second point, love the point made by Paul Hazelby, of course, from the run home with Hayes and Mato, 3 p.m. weekdays on SEN. Hayes on yesterday's show said, forget whether coach Justin Longmuir rants and raves. The Dockers, as they try to overcome their run of poor starts, and it's now up to 16 of 17 first quarters that they've lost, they just need to be proactive and not reactive. And he suggested they take a leaf out of England's test cricket team's playbook and play a bit of baseball. Set the agenda. Get proactive right from the first bounce. Don't wait for Essendon to give them a problem they have to solve. Give the Bombers an early problem they have to solve. And if they get ascendancy in the early going, put it on the scoreboard as they were unable to do against Richmond two weeks ago. Point three, great to see West Coast getting senior bodies back on the park for their trip to Sydney to face the Swans. It looks like Tom Barris, Jeremy McGovern and Liam Duggan will all be available. But don't forget, the main job for West Coast over the back half of this season is to make sure they get their list management decisions right. If there is any young player the Eagles aren't sure about yet, they need to play in the back half of the season so the club is sure about that player before they decide whether he goes or stays. West Coast need to get this right. Above all else that they may or may not do between now and round 23, they need to get this right. The worst thing you can do in AFL footy is get your list wrong. Injuries might cost you a poor season, maybe two. Appointing the wrong coach might cost you a poor season. Get your list wrong and it will cost you two, three or even four seasons. And point four, as difficult as it might be for Adam Simpson to get his head around this, the same applies to the older members of his 2018 Premiership group. And I know Simo's very fond of those players, but... There is already anxiety about the second year of Nick Natanui's contract in 2024. There are decisions to be made on Luke Shuey and Shannon Hearn as well. And when they cut, it is arguable that the Eagles should clip four oldies who are gone as well as four younger players who they don't think will make it. Play the oldies and see if they can stay sound, see if they can recover some durability. They are no good to you sitting in the grandstand.